Rainwater with the Designated Drummer Podcast. And this week I have a very special guest, a very special guest, Steve Getzman from Exile, the group Exile. How's it going? Good, Keach. How are you? I'm good. We've known good. each other since uh, probably the late 80s. Yeah, since dirt. But you guys go back. <laughs> it's amazing that you guys are celebrating your 60th year as a band. Yep. And that's longer yep. than the Rolling Stones, isn't it? No. Uh, they're actually... I think their start date was in, well, now I'm confused between them and the Beach Boys. Um, the Stones started in 62, I think, or the Beach Boys did one or the other. Anyway, they're both ahead right. of us. But other than those two, we can't find anybody who's been together any longer than we have. Yeah, I think you guys hold that, you hold that distinction yeah. in that record of being the longest band that is that started then and is still playing right now, today. yeah. yeah. That's, that is amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. We look at each other all the time and go, how did this happen? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's going to be us in a, you know, a couple of years, I think, because oh, we've been cool. doing it for 30 years almost now. So. Have you? But that's still yeah. not, that's only half of what you guys, yeah, you guys. That's have. a long time, though, 30 years. For a yeah. band to stay together 30 years, I mean, you that's could, a lot. You could teach a master class on <laughs> how to keep a band together yeah. just from your own experiences. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's it, what's really cool about it, is that we have sort of transcended all the normal band dynamics, you know. We're a lot more like family now than we are a band. Yeah. And, you know, some most of the egos are gone. Occasionally uh, they flare, you know, but yeah. it's, it's not like it used to be. Plus the other good part about it is we're no longer worrying about hit singles and and record sales and stuff like that. And yeah. so we're back to being a garage band. And that's what it feels like. You know? It feels like a garage band? It does. Wow. So it's a, it's a lot more fun now. Where there's no pressure and you don't feel like you have to outdo your last single or whatever. That's right. As we're, Aaron Tippin used to call it, chasing songs. He goes, yeah. hey, I used to chase songs a long time ago. Meaning like mm -hmm. you write one, you put it out, you watch it, you what's next and that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a good way to put it. But it's, a, it's just fun now. You know, we're back to being a band of brothers and, and uh, our, we are just how well we play on stage and, and whatever recording projects we have uh, coming down or for, or for us where we'll own the masters, you know, we're not recording for a company. And so it's just all in-house and it's all close and we're, we're family and it, it's just a lot of fun now. Do you all travel on the same bus you know, yep. when you travel? Yeah. Yep. It's us and the five of us and and then we usually have uh, three crew driver three crew guys and then the driver or drivers yeah. sometimes. Sounds very similar to what we got going on. Yeah. I kind saw your bus out there. Yeah, the bus and trailer. Nice. Yeah. And I mean I remember the days when it was uh, for us, Lone Star, it was uh, three buses and two big semis. Yeah. And we had to in the mid two thousands we had to scale way, way down. Yeah. And we're still scaled yeah. down as we were then well you know it's the industry just fell apart you know with with it started with napster you know yeah. and they enabled the free downloads you know and that just just sucked right. all the money out of our industry you know and music row as you know music row is now a shell of its former self it really is yeah you know and it's uh and i and i'm not really sure that they've plugged the dike yet right you know That's it's, true. it's getting better and has gotten better and it's getting better um, you mean with like legislation yes, and things like that coming along and making getting people paid for exactly uh, YouTube streams or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's uh, we sure got gutted, didn't we? Do, uh, one question I had for you: Do mm -hmm. you write? Are you one of the writers in the band? No, I'm not. Um, I once wrote a song called. <laughs> 
my Bonnie cries over the notion. But it, it wasn't a hit for some reason. I, don't <laughs> I like the title. <laughs> no, well, I'm not. I'm not so right. after that, you gave up. You're yeah, like, nah, I'm just going to play drums. <laughs> yeah. No, I did write in the beginning. I thought I would try, but I, I wasn't very good, and I didn't have the initiative to stay with it and get better, like playing an instrument. You know, you, the more you write songs, the better you get. It's a muscle. Like, doing yeah, it. right. Yeah. But uh, with writers like Sonny LaMare and J.P. Pennington and the band, I mean, how can you compete with that? So. Right. Yeah, yeah, don't even try, right? Yeah, <laughs> but I've been content. Just try to be in the same room with them. At yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, <insane. laughs> that's right. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the beginnings of you as a drummer, okay. like as you started out in your mm. journey, your personal okay. journey. Um, you're from Kentucky, right? That's right. So uh, you went to high school there, and did you sort of pick it up in high school, or was it earlier? Yeah, I was. Uh, um, <laughs> it was funny. I mean, when, when I was a, a little kid, I wanted to be a big star. That was that was all I had on my mind. Didn't matter brain. what. Didn't matter what it was. And I was just looking as I got older, I was looking for a vehicle, you know, and, and uh so then music looked attractive and so I started gravitating towards music and then then drums, you know. Right. So I I stole a pair of drumsticks out of the music room at high in high school. <laughs> I was fifteen and I took them home and I play on the bed with them, you know. Did you get caught? Uh, no, I didn't get caught stealing the sticks. I guess I should probably go back to the school and replace them. But anyway, I, that would be really awesome yeah. to go back to the school and admit that you stole these sticks. And sixty <laughs> years later, how many ever, whatever. Yeah. Or, I mean, well. Yeah, I should do that to clear my conscience. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I practiced on the bed, you know, and then started asking my parents if I could have a kit. You know, of course, we were we were a blue collar family, so they didn't have the money to lay out for a new set of drums so you know i was insisting that i would do what i do i think I, at that point at 15 i was working as an usher in a theater and uh I now said, what year would this have been uh 60 1965 okay and uh so you know i assured him that i would pay for it and and uh so finally after i don't know how long i fought with them over the phone they said okay so we went and bought a were you still practicing on the bed and yeah. on pots and pans and things? Yeah. By the way, how did, what was your first kit? Cardboard boxes. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, my parents, I'll tell you a real, just a real quick. Sure. Um, my parents had divorced and my dad had remarried. Mm -hmm. And the woman moved in, the stepmom moved in mm -hmm. with us with a plethora of boxes of stuff. Okay. And it was my job to get rid of the boxes, take them out to the trash, whatever, take them apart, okay. cut them up, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I, when I looked at those boxes, I saw little ones, bigger ones, larger ones, and larger ones. Mm -hmm. I saw a set of drums. <laughs> yeah. so, to me, they were square drums. Sure, I get so that. So I set them up in my room on the backs of chairs and on stands and anything I could find mm -hmm. to prop them up. And mm -hmm. then I had a pair of sticks, you know, yeah. and I remember the first roll across the toms Mm -hmm. was uh one of those things that my dad uh it sort of it jolted him into like what the hell was that you okay. know and he comes bursting in my room where'd you get the drums and he sees all the cardboard boxes in there and he was like <laughs> oh my god yeah. and so that was my first kit <laughs> well that's good what, what was your first actual drum kit first actual drum kit was a set it wasn't even a real drum set it was just like one of my friends, I played trumpet in band, okay. and the trombone player said his brother was selling some drums. Mm -hmm. To me, that I thought it was a whole kit. Yeah. So I get over there, and it's a bass drum with no pedal, okay. a floor tom <laughs> with no legs, yeah. a 
a snare with no bottom head or snare. Okay. <laughs> just a yeah. shell with one tom on top. Yeah. It was kind of like uh, I didn't like to. I don't wouldn't call it a kit, but it was like some drums yeah. is what I called it. Yeah. Know? Okay. And I, that's where I kind of got good at. It. They call me in the band. They call me the MacGyver of the band because I can yeah. fix or make just about anything. Okay. I'm a maker, so. <laughs> That was my first training as yeah. having this partial kit and sort of having to build the rest of it or yeah. somehow fashion the yeah. rest of it together. Yeah. That was my first. And I think they were called Maxitone. Okay. Maxitone drums. Oh, I don't remember that brand name. Yeah. The first uh, kit I got was a Ludwig Oyster Blue Pearl, which I think, didn't, wasn't that what Ringo played? It was, I think he, so, He yeah. played an oyster. I'm not sure if it was Blue Pearl or if it was that black. There's Oyster. one kit that he has that it's the most famous one, the one on okay. Ed Sullivan or whatever Yeah, uh, that they collectors have or it's yeah. in a museum or something. Yeah, of course, I had to have something that at least looked like it. And uh, it was a little three-piece kit. And the guy that, uh, the music store owner that I bought it from, I guess he, you know, I came in a little, a young boy with my parents, you know, so he gave me this old beat-up cymbal. So I had one cymbal. <laughs> And I had a snare and one mounted tom and kick. No hi hat. No hi hat. Yeah, that sounds about like my <laughs> first kit. Yeah. So the, I think the hi hat was the next thing I bought. But I practiced uh, at home for two years before I played with anybody. Wow. Played out anywhere. Did you have like headphones on and like? That kind no, of thing? I didn't. I didn't listen to records then. I just. I mean, I didn't play with records. I would listen to records and I would sort of memor memorize what I was hearing. And then sort of sing it back to boom whack boom whack you know it's, yeah. and then and then I would, that's what I would practice. So I practiced two to three hours a day in wow. in increments wow. for two years. My parents, bless their hearts, I and mean, we lived in a thousand square foot three bedroom home, and they never asked me to stop except once. Really? My mother, I had just learned boom ta boom boom ta. Boom. Okay. And, and it just blew my mind that I could play that. And I just played it over and over and over. My mother finally comes in and says, could I please have a break? Change the beat or something, yeah. right? <laughs> um, wow. And then a local band from school, you know, asked me to join up. Yeah. I remember in high school, I was already playing drums a little bit. And mm -hmm. I, I, it was one of those things that I just knew I could play. I could sit at my desk and I go, the cymbals there and the snares there and the bass drum is on the right foot yeah i just knew i could play and they were saying that they had a little band together some of the other guys in band mm -hmm. said but the drummer they're doing honky-tonk women yeah by the stones yeah and the drummer could not go boom bap boom bap boom boom bap and i was like i could do that yeah. <laughs> i mean who could not do that that yeah. just i was appalled hmm. and he was a drummer in the band yeah okay like in the the school band yeah but playing on the kit he couldn't go boom tap Boom, yeah. tap, boom, boom. Yeah. And uh, that was sort of encouraging for me. Yeah, it's a strange thing how, you know, some people can play only by reading and then others play strictly by ear. Yeah. Which was what I did for six years. I, I played professionally for six years and couldn't read a note of music. Right. But it was only then that I realized I wanted to play more sophisticated. The, the fusion jazz was coming out, funk jazz, and it was brand new, and I really wanted to play that, so... I knew I was going to have to get some training. It was just above my this head. This would have been in the early 70s or mid-70s? Uh, yes. Funk jazz? Yeah, early 70s. Yeah. So yeah. like, uh, oh my gosh. Um, so Stevie Wonder's album would have been that Songs in the Key of Life or whatever, yeah. whichever one of his first albums. When yeah. he started doing all the funky stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been inspiring, yeah. I think. Um, 
Yeah, that was about yeah. Uh, Bob James, uh, some some jazz artists were, were coming out. There's Bob James and Dio Dado, and uh, some of the others that were doing that funk jazz. And, yeah. and I I had moved to Atlanta for a year, and that's where I heard it for the first time. And when I came back, I said I, I got to get some training. So I went into uh, University of Kentucky as a music major. And spent a year, and I guess I would have finished, but then Exile came along, and I joined, and I was too busy for school. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but, um, what year did you said? Or you were saying earlier that you joined Exile in '77. '77, yeah. yeah. And yeah. then in '78, you guys had the big hit. Yeah. I want to kiss you all over. Yeah, I joined in in summer of '77, and we went into the studio that fall. Uh, we had a producer, Mike Chapman. Uh, he was a, a big-time European producer who had come to the United States to break, and uh, he he found Exile. And, and and the rest of the guys are from Kentucky as well. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he comes into Lexington after they hired me and and uh, to check out the new drummer and see how it was going. And he was happy with everything. And he pulls a cassette out of his pocket and it had a song called "Kiss You All Over" that he had written. He and his partner. So a demo of it. Yeah. So uh, we went in the studio in the fall, November, I think it was, and we cut Kiss You All Over and two other songs. Mike Chapman, our producer, took those three songs and went to Warner Curb, Warner Brothers Curb, and got us a deal. So then we went back in the studio in March, I think, of 78 and finished the album, and then they... Uh, as summer approached, they released Kiss You All Over, and it started screaming up the charts, and we were off to the races. Yeah. yeah. And that was in the pop world. Now, I do remember when I was in high school, I graduated 81, so mm -hmm. that was right about the urban cowboy craze. Yeah. And a lot of, because back then, before then, country was kind of like on the pop stations. You heard Dolly Parton, yeah. Kenny Rogers, and all that stuff on mm -hmm. all the stations. That's right. Then, after the urban cowboy thing, it seems to me, if I recollect correctly, um, a lot of country stations started springing up, just country stations. Yes. Uh, and you started hearing more country, like, mm -hmm. just like they would, instead of hearing Dolly Parton on the pop station, you'd hear her on, or yeah. these country artists on, like Ronnie Millsap, on country stations. Yeah. And it seems like I heard this song uh, called Give Me One More Chance, mm -hmm. and it was by Exile. And I went, Exile, that's the pop group. Right. That they just, did you guys just completely go country? Or yeah. was is, was that just a natural, that's how people perceived you? It was actually both. Uh, natural in that we grew up in Kentucky and we all worked as session musicians a lot. And then even coming up through the nightclubs, you play a lot of country music in Kentucky. In the if 70s, you're going to be in like, the music, oh, yeah. Because right, it's Kentucky. Okay. Yeah, if you're going to be in the music business, you're going to play a lot so of So geographically, country. that's exactly. what you did. Yeah. So we, we Kiss You All Over was a smash. We toured. Uh, in the U.S. for about two and a half years on the strength of that one record. And fortunately, we had a lot of success overseas. We had a lot more hits than just one overseas, so we toured over there. But after a while, it was just kind of all over. You know, one hit can only take you so far. And so we're back home and we're licking our wounds and wondering what happened. And we start hearing these songs off of our pop albums being recorded country and, and having hits on country radio uh take me down closer you get with the two biggest ones by alabama yeah so we just looked at each other and said hey we can play country you know 
we like yeah. it. We've done a bunch of it. Let's just go that direction. And that's how that happened. And JP's voice kind of yeah really lent itself to country. Whereas yeah. what was the other singer? I apologize for not uh, remembering Les Taylor. Who? Les Taylor. Yeah. Yeah, but the then, one on the video for "I Kiss You All Over" the long blonde oh, hair. Oh, oh, you're talking about guy? Jimmy Stokely. Yeah. Yeah. Jimmy had been one of the original members. Yeah. And then he left in, I think, '81. I see. Like that. Right about when you guys went country, right? Is that? Uh, well, we, a little bit later, we went country in '83. Oh, right. Okay. Late '83. Okay, right. Yeah. Um, so. And then when Les Taylor came along, was that when the other guy left? He sort of replaced him, or was Les Taylor in before? Nope. That's when Les came in. Les, Les and Mark Gray came in together. Oh, right. And uh, Mark left after two and a half years. Les is still with us. Right. Yeah. I, lo- I love Les's voice. Isn't it great? I love him and JP both, but I mean, yeah. when you hear Les Taylor, it reminded me, when I first heard him, it reminded me of um, Michael Bolton. Yeah. Something about mm-hmm. his voice just sounded like he could just sing the crap out of Michael Bolton if he wanted to. Yeah. But, and you can hear on the harmonies mm-hmm. on your, uh, you know, out, say your like 80s albums, like mm-hmm. mid-80s to late 80s, mm-hmm. you can hear his voice in the harmonies. Yeah. I'll tell you, as pop singers go, when I say pop, I mean popular, pop country, pop, whatever. There aren't many better than Les Taylor. I uh, it's it's an honor to to be on stage with him. Quite honestly, he's yeah. just he's a fantastic singer. Yeah, we saw him a couple of times when I was in Canyon, the group Canyon. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did some shows together when he went solo. Kind of went on his own for a little while. Yeah, and uh, I just like mm-hmm. to get to see just him sing a whole show like that was just I'd never seen him yeah. that much singing like mm-hmm. by himself. Yeah. But that was that was yeah, really cool. Been, and then so he left, and then he came back to the band. And yeah, yeah. We were we were signed to Epic at the time, and we were. Let's see, we were approaching our. Well, we had four uh, albums, and then a greatest hits package, and then we did uh, another album, and then we were getting ready to do another one, which I guess including greatest hits would be seven albums. And uh, he and JP both left in the same year to pursue solo careers. You know, I don't ever remember hearing a, a solo song from JP. I might have, and just thinking it was Exile or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had a he had one hit, um, whatever it takes. Tony Brown produced it. Okay. And uh, but then that was kind of it. Yeah. You know, for him. So. It's funny how, you know, uh, that situation happens where a singer wants to go out on their own, mm-hmm. but it just never is. It doesn't seem that's ever as good as the group, as the strength of a group, right? Yeah, and I, th- I, th- I agree with you on that. Where there's, if if the group is right, if you've got yeah. the right people, it's a powerful thing that's that's di- difficult to match. It becomes yeah. greater than the sum of its parts. Exactly. You know? yeah. Did I say that right? The yeah, sum. Yeah. That's right. And. Uh, so yeah, absolutely, and 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 then plus you have, um, your if if you become, say famous, as part of a group, then you get that stamp, you get that identity, you know, yeah. and that's almost impossible to overcome. Um, the only way you can overcome it is to have just a string of hits afterwards, right. you know, and even then it's, it doesn't seem to shed all the way. Uh, and I think. I think JP and Les kind of ran up against that one in their solo careers. Yeah. And uh, so we got them both back now. Yeah. There's something about the strength of a band, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like we, Lone Star, had gotten in on the that popularity at a time that was just perfect timing, as yeah. Paul Lyme would call it, the golden age yeah. of 
like recording and albums and mm-hmm. you know the whole industry and everything before everything changed yeah. in the mid 2000s yeah. we got in mid 90s you know and then by mm-hmm. the time the 2000s came around we yeah. were having big hits and all that stuff yeah yeah what a great band yeah oh thank you yeah you're welcome appreciate that we I love lone star we've just been doing it and doing it and but just yeah. as long as I'm able, as we're able, we'll yeah. still do it. You know, yeah. probably the same way you feel. Yeah, it's exactly the way we feel. It's it'll be it's 60 years this year, and uh, you know we just look at each other all the time and say we're blessed to be able to still do this. You know, are you doing a pretty good amount of shows right, we're, since COVID? We're doing yeah, COVID. Of course, that wiped yeah. everybody out. But uh, we're back now to 40 to 50 shows a yeah. year, and that's a good pace for us. Yeah, right. You know. Um, I guess maybe we could do more, but but this is okay. Doing theaters and yeah, uh, mostly festivals. theaters and performing arts centers, and then fairs and festivals. I heard you talking on one of your 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 shows, and you were talking about doing a lot of fairs, and yeah, we're doing that too. When that season comes around, and it's mm-hmm. a lot of outdoor festivals and things mm-hmm. like that, usually right around what would be harvest, you know, the harvest season. I think yep. that's when state fairs kind of like traditionally started up. That's yep. always our kind of busy time: late summer, early fall, mm-hmm. all the way into about you know halloween ish yeah that's like fair season and stuff like that yeah and then it starts to slow down yeah and then you start doing theaters and casinos for yeah. the winter and mm-hmm. that kind of thing we did an outdoor show the other day uh two days ago in north carolina an outdoor oh, show at a winery <laughs> it was freezing <laughs> like why do they book these outdoor shows in yeah the winter yeah this every once in a while you stumble on some strange ones <laughs> yeah right you think it's like money laundering or something i think yeah, exactly like, are yeah. they trying to launder some money or something because who's going to show up yeah well, we actually did have a good crowd yeah yeah good but uh so uh one of the questions i, yeah. I had read something that you were talking about um in a magazine or something uh, about playing to a click track mm-hmm. and how in the early days it was sort of like you were the only one that had the click track and you felt like you were being mm-hmm. like a gladiator being pulled apart by two teams of horses yeah. <laughs> musically, you know, and yeah, yeah. is that, you know? Yeah, it was, uh, um, we started using click in the studio. Um, gosh, I don't remember. It was after the Epic View. Oh, I guess when we started the two, the last two, the last two albums we did for major label were on Arista Records. And we used, uh, I think we used Click for all of those. Now, was this pre-Pro Tools or was this with Pro Tools? Because that's kind of the reason I think why producers like the yeah, Click. I, I don't, I'm not sure. Yeah. I can't remember. But um, what I, what you just were talking about, what I was, what I was saying about playing to Click, that that was live, and uh, the guys didn't want the Click live just let you You have it and you play yeah if you want it you can have it steve we don't want it and you're like well what about the times when i'm not playing and then you have to play a thing yeah (laughs) yeah so so you know with me just having the click i mean there are times when i just had to reach over and turn it off because they were pulling so hard in one direction or another and and our band grooves i mean you know all the guys in, in our band can lock into a groove but unless you have that computer there you know you're not going to play perfectly in time right you know so for the most part uh if the band started to pull in one direction or the other i could hold it in but sometimes i just couldn't yeah so it was kind of kind of difficult but then we all started playing with click and that's the way we're doing it now we have everybody has it yeah yeah i think it's become a trick to uh and i'm always battling with uh our keyboard player dean who does a lot of the uh things you know like uh, the video screens and stuff that we have um trying to get a click that's pleasant to listen to yeah because a lot of times you just do the easy thing which is bloop bloop 
from the, yeah. from Pro Tools or whatever. Yeah. But uh, to try and find a, a click that sounds musically yeah decent to listen to is yeah. hard. Where it becomes like another instrument. Yeah. Right. You know, that's, and it has subdivisions, and because yes. there's some slow songs that we do that just have every beat on you know quarter mm-hmm. notes or whatever and sometimes on a slow song there's no subdivisions yeah you're playing mm-hmm. drums on every single one of those so you're kind of covering them up there's yeah. nothing in between yeah. it's kind of hard to follow yeah there are sometimes we get so locked that i'll actually pull back slightly just to be able to hear the click and make sure it's still there is it still on <laughs> yeah <laughs> no i hear yeah. you yeah but i think uh you know i've always mentioned this before in podcasts how uh you know, it's moving in tempo. It's not a bad thing. You know, no. you listen to like honky tonk women yeah. by the stones. It starts out one tempo and by the end of the mm-hmm. song, it's cooking. Yeah. But nobody ever once said, Oh, listen to that. He speeds up or it's a terrible yeah. song or anything yeah. like that. It's just like one of, one of the best lessons. Uh, hope, I hope you don't hear that. I've got a phone ringing in my oh, ear. No. <laughs> uh, one of the, one of the best life lessons or drumming lessons that I ever got was from a, an older man who was who became almost like a second father to me and uh this is up in kentucky pre-exile and i used to do a lot of sessions over there i do a lot of sessions for free just to be able to hear myself back on the equipment right you know, and that, yeah. that was the most valuable uh step i think i ever took in my career but he taught me something he had been a a shrine circus drummer in his younger days so he and I had a lot in common with drumming, and he talked about uh, being on playing on top of the beat and playing behind the beat. Right. And the way he described it, he used his fingers uh, apart a couple of inches, and then he put a, his finger from his left hand right in the middle, and he said, "Right here in the middle is on the beat, and up here is ahead of the beat, and, and here is down behind the beat." And he said, "It's in there, in that range, where you create feel in music." Yeah. You know. And that really stuck with me. When I was going to UK, I mean, I was studying piano, percussion, and theory, and I was learning a lot. But I used to go over in the evenings. I was playing at a Hilton Inn at night, and I'd go over to the uh, school in the evening, and I'd practice for an hour or so before I went to my gig. And at the time, do you remember a song called Squib Cakes? No, I don't remember. It was a, a, it's on the Tower of Power Back to Oakland album. And, of course, one of my heroes, Dave Garibaldi, played, right. played drums. And, and, and this song, it's just a funky instrumental called Squib Cakes. It starts with, uh, I think, four bars of drums. And it's got this real tricky little hi-hat thing. So me and almost every other drummer in the country were right there trying to figure out this hi-hat thing. You know, you hear a drummer practicing, and that's what he was practicing. So I, anyway, going back now to uh, University of Kentucky, I went over there one night to practice before I went to my gig. I walked in the door, and this kid, one of the students, had it down. He was in the back, and he was playing a full kit, and he had it down. And Keach, it had no feel really? at all. Is that it, right? It was just absolutely sterile. And, and that whole year at UK, that was the best lesson that I got was learning that you, that you can actually play anything you want to play and it may not have any feel. Yeah, you know? right. And that's where your heart comes into it. Yeah. I've always, yeah. one thing that I learned kind of recently that helps create like a groove uh, is that for 
and I think I remember who I was talking to about this. It was Greg Morrow or Paul Lime or somebody about having the kick drum being on the beat, like smack, because the bass mm-hmm. player is going to hit that too. Mm-hmm. And then the snare, the, the back beat being just that much yeah. behind. Yeah. So it, it doesn't create any urgency, but mm-hmm. that kick drum's got to be like, that's establishing like the, 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 the groundwork. Right. And then that snare, that's your personal, yeah. you know, it's, you're, you're bringing it, you're pulling the reins back just enough, yeah, not yeah. slowing down, but you're creating. And I think Paul Lime mm-hmm. on some songs, he called it the wet fish where okay. it's um, imagine if you had a, a, a wet fish in your hand and you're perfect. going to hit the snare and it, it's just kind of bending backwards just enough. And then yeah. it hits just that much late. Yeah. Wow. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. But it's, it's that, it's that thing, you know, ahead of the beat and behind the beat. And that's really where a drummer uh, shows his personality. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I grew up listening to people like Steve Miller Band and Boston and stuff like that. And yeah. you could tell that it wasn't, it didn't sound like it was on a click track. I mean, yeah. because you could hear it kind of moving and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was my training ground was listening to records like that. Yeah, yeah, me too. Up. But uh, yeah. so, yeah, you said um, you had mentioned there was a a discrepancy with the computer. You were saying the computer's wrong. <laughs> now, was that a joke or was it really wrong? <laughs> That's a joke. Okay. <laughs> I've I've yet to find a computer that can stay with me. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, I think that's what you said. Yeah. Yeah. No, so, that's um, absolutely a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that computer's wrong. Yeah. But uh um mm. so uh you guys are still playing and you're still hitting the road. Mm-hmm. Um, any new projects coming out? The new albums? Yeah, we, uh, we just uh, released a second Christmas album. It, all these decades we've been together, we we never did a Christmas album until a couple of years ago. So we did. Is that one. all original songs, or did you do the, the um, traditionals? About half and a half. That album might be more original than than uh, covers. Uh, of course, JP and Sonny wrote them the fabulous songs and then uh it went so well that we well we signed on with a record company now it's a small independent label in uh punta gorda florida called clearwater records yeah. and they're just great people and promotions and you know they can get it out there oh yeah they get it they get it done and uh so they wanted a second one so we just recorded a, a second christmas album and uh we have a, a single out that just came out uh back in uh november and uh called love and little christmas and it's done well cool. and in, uh, in typical exile fashion and like typical yeah, jp and yeah jp and sunny they've been writing with uh sharon vaughn she's a pretty big name oh right okay writer and they've been writing with her recently uh incredible stuff and now we're actually finishing up the first studio album we've done in years for clearwater yeah and uh Boy, they've come up with some great stuff. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you'll see the light of day, frankly, because of yeah. you know we we haven't been on radio except classic radio for for years. I'm not sure we can get back on, but we, <laughs> it's like Huey Lewis. We played a show with Huey Lewis last year. He comes in our dressing room and we're talking and just having a good time. And all of a sudden, he lights up and he says, "I I just done a new album." But I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. Like, a, nobody wants to hear Nobody it. wants to hear that. And that has always been a strange thing for me to understand. Yeah. Say, like, a good example would be, like, Alabama. Mm-hmm. If Alabama came out with a brand-new album, would, would radio stations, all they mm-hmm. want to play is just the old stuff that people yeah. are familiar with. They don't want to hear yeah. any new 
you think that people would want to hear the new yeah. stuff. But. Well, I guess it always translates to, to money, frankly. Yeah. So if, if they know their audience and they know the audience doesn't want to hear it, that they want to hear nothing but the hits, and that's what they're going to play. Yeah. You know? Speaking of Alabama, we're opening shows for them now. Is that right? Yeah. We, we did, um, I think we did six or eight shows in 2022. We're hoping we'll, they'll bring us back out in 2023. Wow. We actually did a few in 2021, too. But those are great shows, yeah. you know. It's just uh, us and them, and and they're they're still selling out arenas. It's That's amazing. Incredible. Yeah. yeah, how's Randy doing? Is he hanging yeah. in there? Yeah, Randy's doing well. Uh, Teddy's doing great. Teddy's. Uh, I didn't know him very well until we started doing the, all this stuff. You know, but he's got a great sense of humor. Yeah, and uh, and just a really top notch guy too. Yeah, yeah. Those guys, man, they've been. You know, they. They taught us a lot coming up because we always looked mm -hmm. up to Alabama. Yeah. People like Alabama and the Eagles and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. From, yeah. That was our band training, like how to be a band. Yeah. How to stay together as a band. Yeah. But, um, you know, Randy Owen, uh, we were talking to him after an award show one time back in the, I guess, early 2000s or mm -hmm. something. And we were walking out to our cars after the show and he kind of pulled us aside and said, you know, guys, he said, you know, uh, you need to get over there if you ever get a chance to go over overseas and talk to the, to the soldiers over there mm -hmm. he said uh you just have no idea what it means to them to go and just to tell them that you're proud of what they do and just to let them know that you yeah. know they're there yeah. and that can he goes they're just kids over there just yeah. doing unthink you know trained to do unthinkable things and they're yeah. just people he said if you get a chance go over there and 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 talk to those guys especially the ones yeah. that are in the hospital or the ones mm -hmm. that you know that, that don't get to get out very much he yeah. said it means a lot world to those guys yeah i think he's right we we never had the opportunity to do that like a uso tour i think we never did anything like that but um we have almost every one of our band members has relatives uh that were in the service or or uh, you know a couple uh got killed in the wars and uh so we have utmost respect uh, sonny always takes time out of our shows to thank the veterans and yeah that's you know, awesome yeah um so i'm going to switch gears a little bit okay so i always one of the interesting things to me is sound check yeah. um mm -hmm. do you guys do sound check every day or do you or do you just every day do line check only no we yeah. do sound check we do too yeah but do i've you? known some yeah. groups that don't like to get out there they save yeah. their voice or whatever yeah but uh do you guys do any fun things at sound check jam on stuff or anything what's your favorite part of it no, well, we did when we were younger. Okay, yeah. but now it's um, we've got it down almost to a science. You we, kind of do the same things every time. Yeah, pretty much, unless we have a few things, like we do what we call a holiday and hits tour. That's what we just did. Yeah, did you? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. half the show is is the old hits, and half, the other half is Christmas music. You know, so when we approach the season then we have to get the christmas songs out and sort of dust them off you know we haven't yeah. played them all year how do these songs go again yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh as we go through the christmas shows at least the first few at sound check if we're unsure about any of the arrangements or something we'll use that for sound check you know but just we to kind of familiarize and get used exactly. to practice kind of like a rehearsal yeah but we get on stage and everybody tweaks their gear for a few minutes and then we play a song two or three songs and then anything that we need to run through, but we're usually off the stage within 20 minutes. Oh, right. You yeah. know, but we're not going to get on stage without actually being up there doing the sound check. Yeah. You know, that's important. I think that's where groups differ yeah. from solo artists. I don't know, you know if you're like me, but I tell a lot of my students, 
uh, things about sound check and how to conduct a proper sound check. And the, the rule yeah. seems to, the axiom seems to always be when you're ready to start the song, nobody else will be. The guitar player is always plugging something in or yeah. something. You yeah. know, one, two, hold on, I'm not, wait, wait a second, I'm tuning my guitar. You know, yeah. Yeah. they're never, they're never going to be ready when you are. Yeah. So you got to learn to be patient. And, yeah. It's better if everybody's not noodling on their instrument, right. you know, to, exactly. you know, in the middle of trying to pull it together and play a song, you know, people noodling and tuning yeah. and, you know. So it's just part of being a drummer. Start the song. Yeah. Oh, okay, I'm not ready. Hold on, wait. Yeah, you know, exactly. Start it again. Oh, hang on. I got this thing I got to plug in. Yeah. And, you know, it never seems to be that way during the show, but during, you know, sound check is always like fiddling with things yeah. and all that. Yeah. But that's some of my favorite times of sound check when you get to just jam on a little bit yeah. of stuff. And our singer, Drew, he uh, is like a library of songs because he's mm -hmm. done a single act for a long time when mm -hmm. he was with Sons of the Desert for a long time. Yeah. And after that, he started doing his own thing. He could just like rattle off any you know, like Shenandoah song or whatever. Yeah. And how he remembers all those lyrics is just uh, yeah. fascinating to me. But yeah. it's cool just kind of jamming a little yeah. bit in sound checks. And yeah. I heard, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's true, but I think it's true. Uh, Keith Urban and his band learn a song every day. Oh, that's cool. A cover song. You know, they just work it up and play it. And, uh, you know, doing that will, will stretch you. you it know? does. Yeah, and, right. Uh, I agree. That's a really cool idea. If it's true, I think it is. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sometimes sounds like a guitar player, he'd be playing something. Or, like, my favorite is I'll start playing uh, Take the Money and Run mm -hmm. by, uh, yeah. uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, you know, sometimes they'll come in playing and sometimes yeah. they won't, you know. Yeah. But, Who did um, that song? I'm Steve to, Miller. Steve, Steve Miller, Miller, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's got the coolest drum yeah. intro ever. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of fun to play. Yeah. And uh, so that's, I always look forward to that during sound checks, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Just get to jam a little bit instead of yeah. just the mundane, every every single day doing the same yeah. song and all that. But yeah. Did you study music? Um, I did not. No, I was in high school and I played trumpet and that kind yeah. of thing. And that's where I learned yeah. how to sort of read music a little right. bit. Right, right. And then it uh, got to be a point where uh in in my high school like 11th grade or 10th grade or something mm -hmm. like that where i decided to focus more on drums yeah instead of trumpet i had an art class that conflicted with band and so i mm -hmm. wanted to take that art class so i conveniently sort of didn't take band that year yeah <laughs> and yeah. i was kind of trying to focus more on drums and i did yeah. and yeah it's like you said like started practicing a lot and yeah. on my own and yeah and uh, my goal was mm. i had heard some people say uh, some people that I was hanging out with said, talking about another drummer or something mm -hmm. when I was young. And they saying, oh, you should get that guy. That guy's really, and they would always, that you should get that guy. Yeah. He's the one you want kind of thing. And I secretly wanted to be that guy. Yeah, okay. You know, that mm -hmm. other people would say, you should get Keach. You could get, he's, right. he's the drummer you need. Right. And so I worked and I practiced and I worked mm -hmm. on my look and the way my kit looked and everything. And yeah. eventually I did get to be where people would say, you got to get that guy. He plays yeah. solid and, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I, I think that I got into doors bigger than I actually belonged, you know. I, yeah. I, I uh, for a long time, I, uh, I, had a, I had a really good sense of meter. And I think that quality alone got me into places where I, I wasn't really good enough otherwise to be there. But I'm, you know, I was absolutely grateful and I worked on all the skills, but that's, uh, that was the, quality in my playing that was the front runner yeah. you know in the beginning so on kiss yeah. you all over you didn't have a click on that right no they didn't nobody used clicks wow, back that in was because that when you yeah. listen to that it's almost like a drum machine it's just like so do, 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 in that kick drum the our producer mike chapman 
uh, we were, he called, he was from Australia and he called rehearsal routining. We were routining Kiss You All Over. And he came over to me and he said, have you heard the new Barry White hit? And I can't remember which one it was, but you remember his songs. They were yeah. just slow grooves. And, right. you know, he said, that's what I want you to play on Kiss You All Over. You know, I said, okay. So that's what I played. And that was in like <laughs> right after the disco era, like like just yeah. at the tail end of the that's disco right. era right there. That's so right. So still had that. Yeah, that that just straight straight ahead beat. Yeah. You can't beat that. Yeah, there was a lot of grooves in pop music right yeah. back at that time. A lot of R and B flavor stuff, and so that's what I played. And it's funny, um, he brought the song in. We really didn't think much of it, and it it was really a departure from everything else we were doing. Yeah, and so he really pulled us through the arrangement. Mike did the producer. He pulled us through the arrangement and. So we cut it, and we were happy with the cut and everything, but then we finished the album, and before Kiss You All Over came out, they announced that it, Kiss You All Over was going to be the first single, and I remember one day JP and I were talking, and I said, what do you think about Kiss You All Over as the first single? And he scrunched up his face and shook his head, no. <laughs> JP did? Yeah, <laughs> and I did the same thing of, of, of everything on the album. That was the one that had the least chance, really. You know, of doing well, and boom, there it goes. Wow. You know, that's kind of always the way it is. It seems like it's the least, the one that you would guess the least. You know, amazed our song, amazed. Yeah. That was just another cut on the album, and I thought it was, was just it? kind of yeah. It yeah. Was just okay. like, oh, that's a good song. Yeah. yeah. You know, but did we the, had no idea that it, it was going to yeah. be like such a big favorite. Did the label pick that song? Um, remember. Uh, we actually, what's funny is the first song we released off that album, off the Lonely Grill album, was one called Saturday Night, okay. which is kind of like boom, 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 ba dum, boom, ba dum, and it just a funky thing, mm -hmm. but it just did not sound like us. Okay. And that was the comment that we got from radio and stuff. We mm -hmm. thought it was going to be a big smash because it sounded so different, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the radio was like, that, who is that? That doesn't mm -hmm. sound like Lone Star. Okay. And then we had to pull that song the last like 11th hour. We had to say, okay, wait, well, not that one, but maybe, uh, maybe this one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was amazed. Oh, they put okay. amazed out and they were, right. they were like just in time, you know, because they were yeah. fixing to write us off as like, Oh, they're just trying to be different. And they're trying yeah. to yeah. be, cause Dan Huff was our producer at the time. We had okay. just signed on with yeah. Dan Huff and mm -hmm. he was a big come from the pop world yeah. of rock and all that. Were you guys happy when they picked up, uh, picked out amazed? to go um, with to go with oh there. yeah i think so yeah, yeah okay. um the only thing we were a little bit worried about was we wanted it to be an up-tempo song because mm -hmm. it's funny how country radio was always complaining about yeah oh another ballad yeah too many ballads all you heard on the radio was ballads yeah and i think that's probably where they were coming from it's yeah, like okay. so many ballads out there yeah the passion is is there and mm -hmm. you know you want that but um yeah i think radio kind of wants up-tempo they're just like play some up-tempo stuff yeah I and remember now here that. we were like passing off this ballad here's a ballad <laughs> it's a really good one but <laughs> yeah but, uh, yeah. yeah, we just lucked out, and then it just kind of it's caught on slow, yeah. and then it kind of picked up steam, and then it was like a yeah. nine-week number one. Yeah, big record. God, that was a big Unbelievable. record. Unbelievable. Yeah. And so uh, it's amazing for us to have uh, our career now, touring mm -hmm. and doing the things based on songs that we had like back then, Yeah. that people still have passion enough for to come see us play and yeah. buy tickets and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Now, you guys have had uh, 11 number one songs. Right. Uh three gold albums mm -hmm. and uh eight million records. eight million records sold yeah golly that's worldwide yeah yeah that's wild we hit, when there was a a time in in uh the early 80s when, when we were huge in south africa 
1980, we went down there for three weeks. We did a, a week of media, and then we played two weeks at a theater sit-down gig in Johannesburg. And we'd had a string of hits by the time we got there. Of course, you know, it's a smaller market. A, a gold record at the time was 25,000 copies. Right. And then we went back down in 1982 and toured the whole country. And by then, we'd had a bunch of hits, and they released a, a greatest hits package in advance of us coming down. It went gold in 15 days. That was the first time that that it, we broke all the records for the country. Wow. And uh, the first night of the tour, we we played in Loftus Veresfield Arena in Pretoria. And was it Pretoria or yeah, Pretoria? And it was a 70,000-seat uh, soccer arena, and we filled half of it wow. as a headliner. It was, it was awesome. That is cool. Uh, and then we five and a half weeks, we toured the whole country. Wow. That was one of the more memorable things. Almost as big done. as Rodriguez. Almost. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. I love that story. Yeah. That story oh, about Rodriguez, the wait, singer. That, I haven't heard that. Uh, there's a documentary called Searching for Sugar Man. Okay. And it's a story about in the late 60s, this mm -hmm. guy named Rodriguez from Detroit okay. had a record out and it didn't do very well and he mm -hmm. just kind of gave up. Somebody took it over to South Africa mm -hmm. and a radio station got a hold of it and started, mm -hmm. this was in the early 70s, I guess, by the mm -hmm. 70 or 71, mm -hmm. started playing this record, it gained popularity mm -hmm. and they started, people started, uh, somebody started selling bootleg copies of it mm -hmm. around all completely unbeknownst to the artists no kidding <laughs> and anybody in the states because it was so you know south africa was so locked off from yeah. everything else and it yeah. was just this one girl that mm -hmm. went over to visit her boyfriend that had this mm -hmm. record mm -hmm. and then it just got it gained popularity yeah and then nobody knew that this was happening but except mm -hmm. the south africans they thought rodriguez somebody started a rumor mm -hmm. that rodriguez had set himself on fire committed suicide and this political thing <laughs> so as far as they knew he was dead yeah well, it turns out that somebody was trying to do an article there in the mm -hmm. early 2000s, like 2001 okay. or two, right. in South Africa, and uh, was doing an article about him and his music. And then they found out, uh, was putting things through the Internet mm -hmm. about, does anybody have any information on him? And this, yeah. his daughter, Rodriguez's mm -hmm. daughter, answered the thing and said, yeah, that's my dad. Well, and he said, well, I'm sorry about your dad's passing away and all yeah. that. What are you talking about? He's very much alive huh. and it, this whole conversation just kind of elevated to yeah, where okay. the guy went and met rodriguez and said you don't understand he said in south africa there's three main singers that everybody knows that are the most popular there's yeah. elvis yeah there's michael jackson mm -hmm. and there's rodriguez no kidding. yes that's yeah, the okay. perception of the wow. way and they made a whole documentary about where they brought him back mm -hmm. to south africa yeah and imagine if somebody brought Elvis back and said, oh, no, right. he never died. Right. He, he, he was just, you know, yeah, it was a mistake. And here he is. Like. Yeah. And he's going to sing, uh, you know, yeah. jailhouse rock for you. <laughs> That's how they reacted over there. Yeah. The audiences were just, you know, just uh, completely appalled that yeah. uh, and, and delighted that he was still alive. And then he's there yeah. he is on stage playing yeah. music. And it was a great story. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned kind of in passing about uh, South Africa was kind of isolated. Yeah. And there, when we went over in the first the first time in 1980, apartheid uh, right. was beginning to crumble, and they were the South Africans were very paranoid about how the Americans viewed them right. with apartheid. And our manager gave us some great advice on the way over. He said, "When you're doing media, they're going to ask you about this. You know, how do you feel about apartheid? They're going to want to know how the Americans feel." 
And he said, just avoid it. Just say, right. I'm here to play music. We don't deal with politics, you know. So that's what we did. But I remember there was a, a woman interviewer. She was, I think she was with AP, and she got very confrontational. You know, she was trying to push us, actually anger us to where yeah. we might blurt something. She you was know. really wanting you to talk about that. Yeah, and exactly. And uh, now when we went back, and that was 1980. When we went back in 1982, it was a complete change. I mean, by then, uh, apartheid Politically was, in the whole country. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, just the way people uh, were treated and the way they acted, entirely different scenario from just in two years. Wow. You know, it was really interesting. I'm, I'm kind of a history buff, too, and, and uh, so just watching all of this was fascinating. Yeah. I think you would be fascinated by that documentary, Searching for Sugar yeah. Man, because I'm, you seem to be interested in the history and stuff, yeah, to, well. to see how. Mm -hmm. and, and the main thing is, like, how does this happen in mm -hmm. today's world with this digital yeah. and there's right. basically no, no, no you know, wall between anything, you know, with the yeah. Internet and that kind of stuff. Right. And all of a sudden in the right. early 2000s, somebody just resurfaces that they thought was dead. Yeah. Now I'm going to look up Rodriguez when I get yeah, Rod That was his name. <laughs> and I think that's probably why, uh, in my estimation, why his, his albums were great. The songs mm -hmm. were wonderful, but he just didn't make it. And I think it had to do with his name. I think in the early mm -hmm. 70s, late 60s, early 70s, when someone heard the name Rodriguez, mm -hmm. they probably thought it was like Mexican music or something like yeah. spanish yeah exactly or like he spoke spanish and mm -hmm. like mariachi or something yeah. but he was kind of like bob dylan he was kind of like a wow. sort of a, a different version of bob dylan sort of mm. yeah, but uh, and, the, an and the story. way that the the uh the guy that was um the reporter had found out where mm -hmm. he might be from is there was one line in a song that said i knew a girl from dearborn so he just did a search in dearborn michigan yeah. That's the only place he could find. Hmm. And so he thought, well, maybe he's from around that area. And sure enough, he was. You yeah. Know. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, if I can ask you, uh, how many shows are you guys doing a year now? Ever, now that COVID was up, this mm -hmm. last year we had was our biggest year mm -hmm. since the early 2000s when yeah, okay. Amazed and yeah. I'm Already There and all that stuff was out. Mm -hmm. um, we were doing over 100 shows a year. And then uh, then in the mid-2000s, it sort of dropped down to about 80. Yeah. And then stayed that way up until about COVID then it was zero. Yeah. And then yep. once COVID came out, a lot of makeup shows and a lot of people are just ready to get out. Yeah. The booking agents were just going crazy. And so yeah. Yeah. we told our agent, just, you know, book us. Like, we want to make mm -hmm. up for what we lost in COVID. Yeah. So yeah. we did in a big way. Yeah, we did one of the busiest years we've had Great. since before, since mm -hmm. in the early 2000s. Yeah. So we probably did 100, 120 shows or something like Dang, that. that's a lot. Which is really nothing compared to have you ever talked to Sawyer Brown, the the guys in Sawyer Brown? Not about this, no, I haven't. Matt, man, back in the day, mm -hmm. they were doing 200 and something shows a year. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, well, there's only 365 right. possible, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they were doing right up to, almost up to that, 200 wow. plus. Yeah. It's like, that's not even hardly a day off, you know. Yeah. That's a lot of shows. It made me feel like, oh, we haven't done anything you know, compared to that. But those you guys put have. in you put in travel days in there too, where you're not right. playing, but you got to travel to get there. And yeah. that's and free shows like yep. benefits and mm -hmm. TV shows and things like that. Yep. I, I call them free. They're mm -hmm. uh, basically not paying gigs that, that right. you're expected to do. Right. Yeah. And charitable events where you just have to show up. Yeah. You know, play golf or whatever. Yeah. You know, there's those too that take up a full day. Do you guys do acoustic shows as well sometimes? Um, no. Um, the, there was a, a time where JP and Sonny and Les would do, uh, writer showcases. Oh, okay. You know, as JP, Sonny and Les of Exile. 
And they did that for a while, but they've they've kind of let that go. I don't know why. But no, we we haven't done acoustic. Now we do some, like if it's a really small TV studio or or they want kind of kind of an unplugged something for filming. Yeah. Um, then you know I'll play blast sticks and and play lightly, but try to match the intensity just at a lower volume. Yeah. And uh, so we occasionally do things like that, but but usually it's full on. And, That's cool. And they like me to play really hard, so I I always have. Do you have kids? Yeah, uh, I have two, and then my wife has two, so we have four. Yeah. And uh, they're all grown now. And uh, my the two my two daughters one lives in Seattle one lives in Portland, and then we have um, uh, one, her daughters is in San Diego and the other one is in Nashville, wow. or Clarksville. Yeah. So yeah, and uh, we have two grandchildren. Yeah, that'll keep you busy for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, when you're not on the road, come home to the grandchildren. Right. Yeah. I do not have grandchildren yet, but I, someday I, mm-hmm. my son is 32 now, so mm-hmm. he, you know, it might be, you know, coming up soon. He's in the reserves. He's a, yeah, okay. He is a uh, Black Hawk helicopter ch- crew chief. No kidding. Yeah. Wow, that's so he gets impressive. to do all the fun stuff. Yeah. He's actually he's, above the pilot. He mm-hmm. likes to point that out. <laughs> <laughs> he tells the pilot when to show up and what to do. And I'll be darned. That kind of thing. Yeah. Is he married? Uh, no, he's not. That's okay. why I'm saying I don't want to have grandchildren yet. But I, yeah. you know, it's he's at an age where yeah. you know he could be. It could happen any yeah. any day now. Yeah, it's it's tough having kids, uh, little kids, when you're on the road. Yeah, it's, it, it really is. It, it really, it ate my lunch. Quite frankly, really, I couldn't stand it. And uh, you know, they would. Although I have to say, is a funny story. I'd get in my car and I'd be backing out of the driveway to go on the road and my two little girls would be running after the car crying. Oh. I mean, and I'm looking through the windshield backing up and I'm going, oh, my heart's breaking all over Break the place. Break your heart. You know, oh. So I'd get a couple blocks away. I'd just feel terrible and I'd, I'd call my wife and I'd say, oh, God, I'm just feeling awful. And she said, don't worry about it. They've forgotten. They're off playing. <laughs> They've already, it's already gone. <laughs> They're already worried about something else. Yeah. Right. Wow. There's a great story that Paul Lyme tells about his son that when he got the he was a session guy just only sessions mm-hmm. only and he got the offer to go play with like james taylor or somebody mm-hmm. and it was one of those like we need you tomorrow like yeah. this other guy fell through and if you can get on a plane mm-hmm. so he was about to go and his son was only about five years old and he looked at him and said are you ever coming back oh and god Paul just like, oh god oh my god he called him and said i can't do it i'm sorry yeah, I, i'm did. gonna have to pull out oh, and he didn't do yeah, it okay wow yeah. That can you imagine? Yeah, yeah that's tough to f- confront that. You know, yeah. well, I'm going to go out on the road. Are you ever coming back? Are you ever coming back? It's wow. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. But, How'd um, you do when your when your son was real young? Um, he understood. He kind of mm. he kind of got it. You know, wow. and uh, I think I tried to make up for it when I would come home. We would go mm. out and do special things, and so yeah. he would always look forward to that. Yeah, and trying to keep up with phone calls and all that stuff. Mm. This was before mm. cell phones. Yeah, so it was yeah. tough. You know. And my daughter, she's 16. She's Canadian. And um, I have, I guess maybe in a way I tried to make up for what I might have not done when uh, when Dakota was, was younger. Yeah. Um, so I got an apartment in Canada. And mm-hmm. I was, every time that we weren't on the road, I was headed up to Canada. And yeah. I was like, take yeah. her to school and pick her up. And she would always look forward to those times. And yeah. to this day, we have a great relationship. And Yeah. I'm sure the, the the payoff for your doing that is a lot greater than you even know. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I read somewhere that they said being a father, they said 
try to imagine what you what presence you have in your daughter's life mm-hmm. um especially as a daughter right father and daughter mm-hmm. uh and think about what how much you mean to, in a scale from one to ten mm-hmm. um like how much you mean to them and how much mm-hmm. of a presence you have in their life and they yeah. said double that wow yeah good formula i mean yeah. that's how important it is yeah and and the, mm-hmm. and the, how they'll carry that in their life further and further and yeah. their relationships and things like yeah. that to have a good solid relationship with your daughter. Yeah. So I've always remembered that and I've mm-hmm. always you know. Yeah. And of course she's 16 now so trying to yeah. get her on the trying to get her to answer a text or something it's yeah. kind of like ah dad's I'll just I'll answer them yeah. later. <laughs> so yeah. I, yeah. I want to ask you another question. Sure. You ever sit around and you and wonder if you took the wrong direction that maybe you should have been an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor or a manager or whatever, you know, where you went to work eight to five and you, and you work for the American dream and you, now you're on a pension and you ever any regrets like that? I can honestly say not one time. Really? And I, and I Mm -hmm. think of that as like, cause I'm just feel so lucky. I've just been so lucky in my career. Mm -hmm. There never was a time that I can ever remember where I thought like, maybe this just isn't the thing. Maybe it's mm-hmm. not going to work. It always mm-hmm. like stubborn minded ever since I was like, well, out of high school, yeah. it's that stubborn mind is like, I'm going to be a drummer, even if I have to starve to death. Yeah. I mean, I would yeah. rather be hungry and still be able to say I'm a drummer mm-hmm. by trade mm-hmm. than to just quit and give up and go get a job somewhere yeah. and have a fallback. My only fallback was I was a good woodworker. And mm-hmm. when, things were light and I was in between bands or something like that in the eighties. I could always go do work at a shutter place or do some kind of woodwork or something, you know, for a while. But I always with the mindset that as soon as I get a gig or as soon as someone calls, I'm off playing drums again. Right. Did you ever feel that way? Um, Probably momentarily here and there, you know, when things weren't going well. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But my, my music career always, overcame such thoughts you know yeah. there was always something rolling um uh, that was like catching the next wave you know you might be sitting around feeling sorry for yourself but then all of a sudden you got a wave to catch yeah and uh so I, that's probably the best answer i can give i've i've been you know in the music business non-stop now since uh well professionally since i was 19 which was 1970 wow you know so uh, I'm proud of it. And I look back over it and I feel blessed, you know, that I've been yeah. able look at, look at the odds for you and I, yeah. you know, the, the, to get with a hit group and as a drummer, unless you can sing, right. you know, which right. I can't sing a lick. To be a member of a group and not just a side guy. Yeah. That's really the only way you got a shot at stardom, so to speak. And, and, and royalties, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the odds for you and I, as drummers in hit groups, you know, that that's really slim, really slim. And, and then on top of that, groups that have stayed together this long, even exactly. you know, to be a member of a hit group for a mm. while and then they break up or something. But yeah. for us to have persevered right. yeah. that and we're still playing drums, we get to hit on things for a living. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and people stand up and applaud us for it. I mean, what better yeah. job could you possibly have? Yeah. yeah, that's right. My wife makes that point sometimes that, you know, you finish work and people stand up and applaud. <laughs> yeah, I, I, try to try to do that being a plumber, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, and I'm not putting down plumbers, I promise. I'm right, right. Probably putting my foot in my mouth, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, to have a job that where people applaud you. Yeah. And hit and you get to work out all your aggressions. I feel like I have the best job in the band. Mm-hmm. 
because I get to play and beat and physical yeah. and work out and yeah. all those great things. You know, I yeah. get to, you know, do, even if I lose my voice, I could still hit on things. You yeah. Know? Well, I'm in good health. You look like you are too. And, yeah. and a lot of that is attributable to playing drums and playing them hard. You know, I think you're right. I think I read somewhere that mm-hmm. a drummer during a one an hour and a half show, mm-hmm. normal concert, um, an average drummer, which I think I play harder than an average drummer. I mm-hmm. try to put a little more into it. Mm-hmm. An average drummer burns, uh, I think they said 600 to 700 calories. That's a lot. In, in an hour and a half because mm-hmm. it's that constant movement. Wow. And I feel like I put about double into that mm-hmm. just because of the way I play um, and the type of songs we do yeah. that I probably burn close to 800 to 1,000 calories probably. Yeah. Well, when our publicist called and, and asked if I wanted to do this interview with you, and I said, yes, of course. And so I went to your to your site, and I pulled up uh, your interview with Greg Morrow. All right, okay. Greg, I watched Greg do a session one time. I was in the, in the control room. He was out in the studio, and I don't know what I was there for. But to talk about playing hard, I, that guy's a beast. Yeah. I mean, I halfway expected him to, to drive the snare drum and stand all the way through the floor. He was hitting so hard. Yeah. And uh, it, it was very impressive. He's a big guy anyway, yeah. you yeah. know, but, uh, man, he hits hard. Yeah. Yeah. And I, sometimes I wonder if that's what engineers really want mm-hmm. or do they want a, a lighter tone? Yeah. Who knows, you know. But. Yeah. I think they can work with either one. The, our band has always wanted me to play hard on stage. Yeah. They they love it. Are you a hard yeah. player? Do you? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, well, not as much as I used to be. You know, I'm I've gotten older now. But but you can you can um, again note placement. You know. Yeah. You can place a note in a snappy way, and if you hit the drum properly, it's pretty yeah. dead gum loud. Yeah. You know, with 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 an economy of motion. Yeah, right. You know, you and of course, the engineer is always gonna to get pick up the sound, to be, exactly. even if you're just hitting light. Yeah, I know Paul Lyme when he plays. I've watched him play. Mm-hmm. He doesn't hit super hard, but he's got the tone of the note, and the, yeah. he just sometimes the there's the dynamics there that are just yeah. so light. But yeah. when you hear the records, it's like wow, that's yeah. like in your face. Yeah, Paul's far and away one of my favorites. You know, yeah, I feel fortunate enough to to have become a friend. Uh, we're not a, we're not close friends. But we're more like uh, business friends or friends as drummers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he brought a. I, I did some artist managing for a while, and he brought a uh, an artist to me, and I I was trying to figure out a way to manage this guy, and I couldn't, never could quite figure it out. But Paul and I got kind of close during that process, you know. And uh, he's such a good guy. Plus, he's a writer, and I'm a writer, and and uh, we had that in common too. Yeah. But I'm just proud to have his phone number. I know, really. Isn't it great? Yeah. I had him on the podcast um, oh, about a year ago, a little over a year ago or so. Um, uh, so spring, not this last spring, but the spring before, I believe. Um, and he was so gracious to come in and spend his time. We talked for over an hour. It was an yeah. hour and a half. We yeah. talked. I actually had to edit it down. Hmm. And then I had think on my YouTube channel, I have like the full unedited version yeah. where he talks about tv contracts and yeah uh the golden age of mm-hmm. television you yeah. know like recording and mm-hmm. all that stuff 100 percent scoring and all that i yeah. learned a lot yeah listening to him yeah and he talks about his um 
if you ever get a chance, you should go listen listen to it. Mm-hmm. He talks about his in the early seventies when he was went out to L.A. and he mm-hmm. was going to play. Yeah, and it was like he just totally. They said get somebody else in here because mm-hmm. he didn't know to fold the page out oh. of the music. Yeah, you know, right. All yeah. the, everybody's playing. He's yeah. ending too quick. Yeah, and the producer was very impatient and mm-hmm. said, "No, this guy, this young guy, we need somebody." Is is um, you know, is Mac Blaine? Yeah. Uh, Hal Blaine, sorry. Yeah, is Hal yeah. Blaine available? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, they got somebody else in there. He said yeah. he was about to end his career right there. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, the, you mentioned something about uh, the, the more of the business side of things. And it's, uh, I think that's uh, really important. I think it's an asset for anybody who's coming into the business. Uh, if you're really going for the brass ring, it really pays to step back and do some reading uh just seek out some some information about uh contracts uh contract structure um the different uh elements of the visa business publishing uh booking uh management all of it and and figure out how it works at least a basic structure of each yeah and it helps you navigate the waters especially yeah. if you start having some success you know you know what to grab onto and what to leave alone yeah. to advance your career and uh so the learning the business side of the business is is really valuable and i would i would strongly encourage any young person who's coming into the business to get to get that knowledge base so they know yeah uh, how to navigate like one of the most important things is like get an attorney to read a con don't right. sign anything without exactly having somebody that knows what they're doing read it and yeah. so many people have made that mistake famous yep. people billy joel or whatever yeah. Yeah. you know those people that would sign something because they're trying to get mm-hmm. their career going yeah and only to find out later that they don't mm-hmm. own their publishing yeah. or they don't own anything yeah and then there's you know guys like us who've who've uh, had a good run you know and how do you hang on to that how do you hang on to the money how do you hang on to the success the royalties how do you know you're getting all your royalties from all the sources globally you know that you're pulling it all in because nobody's going to look out for this for you yeah you know and even a manager at that point you know most managers don't dig into that stuff they're more interested in, in doing uh, stuff that advances the career. Yeah. So it's kind of you're. It's kind of like you're not going to have a retirement program. So it's kind of up to you to make sure you pull all this in. So it's good to know when you're young how all this works. So you can just making easy decisions along the way. You can build yourself a great structure for your yeah. retirement. You know where your royalties are coming in and. Yeah. You know. I think one of the biggest things we're learning with our manager Gary Borman, mm-hmm. who used to manage Faith Good Hill man. and all that back in the time. Yes, sir. He taught us a very valuable word, a very valuable lesson: when to say no. Mm-hmm. Because everybody just wants to. Oh yeah, we'll do it. Sure, no problem. Yeah. Let's sign it. Let's do yeah. it. Right. But being able to say no is one of the most important things you could possibly do. You yeah. know. When when we had when we came into country music, you know, we'd gone through a period where we didn't think we were going to have any more success. So when the success came again, we were so grateful that we said we're going to kill ourselves you know to to make this big and our manager who's Jim Morey who's a LA manager he's uh, he came he became a superstar manager uh, even managed Michael Jackson for for a while wow. during the zenith of his career and uh he he kept saying guys don't do everything yeah. you know we were just doing everything because we wanted to sort of solidify this round of success and of course your record label will try to get you to do so many things to help other artists and to whatever yeah that's the thing where you know 
anybody else on the team is going to want you to do as much as possible of anything, any little bit of exposure, they want you to do that. The manager, if you've got a good manager, is thinking about what you're made up of as an artist. And when you expose yourself through media and through events, they should be in keeping with the philosophy of your artistry. Right. And that that communicates to the public not only that you're you're worthy of listening to, but it's your personality that they're getting too. You're not just holding up a shotgun and shooting out into the world, you know, mm. oh, I'm a star and we make records. You know, you're actually saying it in the way that you should be saying it. Yeah. Maybe even possibly creating a little mystique instead of exactly. just like blurting everything out and exactly. yeah, whatever. Yeah. And that may suit you as an artist to be mysterious and then it may be uh, just the opposite. Maybe you are the type of person that should expose yourself in every way, but at least it's philosophical. At least you get you get your arms around who you are as an artist and what you are and how you identify and how you are identified, and that's expressed through your choices in in media. Yeah, you know. So it's. It, it, I wish we had listened. You know, to that one. So it's was, almost like being a man of few words, mm-hmm. but really choosing your words wisely. As opposed to somebody that's yeah. just like, you know, talks yeah. all the time or something. Exactly. So I guess the the best way to get yourself in that position is just be careful about who you choose to be on yeah. your team. Yeah. You don't have to say yes to everything. That's right. Right. <laughs> well, man, thank yeah. you so much for spending so much time with me. I think I've gone over your uh, time. Yeah. Well, there was no really time limit, but yeah. I didn't want to take too much of time. But no, that's okay. I've I've really enjoyed this, and I, you know, you and I have so much in common. It's it's real easy talking to you. And oh, and, thank you. And and it's uh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, okay. this has been uh, Keith Rainwater and Steve Getzman of Exile and Lone Star, respectively. And uh, we'll see you out on the road. All right, Mr. Keach. Much more success to you guys. Sixty Thanks. plus years. Thanks. I'll talk to you again on your seventieth seventieth year. Okay. Fair enough. See you.